morning, church. Great to see you. Do me a favor, give, get out your uh, handout and get your Bible out. Turn with me to Exodus 34. If you don't have a Bible, hopefully there's one in a chair in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take that one with you, okay? That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to have a copy of the Word of God. Take notes. That gets you ready for your small group. I hope you're in a small group. If you're not, it's not too late, okay? We're less than halfway through, so join up and do this in do this, this uh, sermon series in community. Really an important part of your journey. Um, yeah, I, yeah, we got a lot going on. A lot going on. I, my phone is blowing up. Two of our campuses are struggling this morning with technology and sick worship leaders. I just want to pray. Can I do that? Can I do that? Because the gospel's going forward. One of them's Williamsburg. Williamsburg's packed, by the way. Like, we launched a campus up there like 20 weeks ago with like 200 people. It's running over 500. And they don't have... They don't have technology this morning because they're in a rental space, and man, that can throw things off. Our Hampton campus, our worship leader's sick. So we have en- real enemies that want to distract from the gospel going forward, right? So let's pray. God, um, I pray for our Williamsburg campus, God. They need, they need this, you know, we're mobile, and we don't have, we can't get in there during the week. We need this projector to work, God, so that they can sing. There's hundreds of people gathering to sing praises to you this morning. It's really hard to do in our current setup, God. So I just pray, God, that you get that screen working and the projector working, God. I pray for our Hampton campus. Worship leader got sick in the middle of the night, God. They want to sing praises just like we did this morning, God. And, uh, you know, we have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. want to distract and hinder the gospel going forward. The good news is... Uh, we've read the end of the book. We know you win, God, and uh, we want to be on the winning team in Christ. So, God, I just pray you'll clear away distractions. God, even here this morning, we can be distracted in spirit. Our influence of the world this week can distract us, and this morning, you want to draw our attention to you, like your very character, God, and your character is nothing to be trifled with. God, we're just... We're created from the dust. I mean, who are we to tell you what should be or how it should go, God? We, we need to bow a knee to you. You are the sovereign king of heaven. And God, I pray as we leave here today that we would, as we just sang, our, that God, you, Christ, you would be everything. You'd be my delight. God, I'm so easily distracted. I delight in so many temporary and foolish things. God, may we delight in Christ alone. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I, uh, I, I, I love bad weather. Anybody here watch the Weather Channel? Any of you get envious of Jim Cantore's job? Like, man, that's awesome. He gets to drive right into the heart of the hurricane, you know, and do that. I love that. When a hurricane's coming, I, I know this is bad. All the insurance people in the, co- in the congregation are like, no, we don't want hurricanes, you know. But, like, I love them. Like, bring it on. Good snowstorm. Bring it on. Uh, but when my wife and I were in seminary, uh, we were living in Orlando, and um, there was... Uh, and or, uh, Florida is not known for tornadoes in general and certainly not known for strong tornadoes. But for whatever reason, there's this very strange weather pattern in Orlando, and it was producing ginormous tornadoes. And one of them was between an F4 and an F5, and it literally jumped our apartment building and hit the uh, 
car dealership across the street. And, um, and I remember waking up in the middle of the night and like you were like, all the things you hear about tor- strong tornadoes is true, like locomotive, uh, rain going sideways. And uh, the next morning we got up, we were on the top floor. I, we didn't really know what was entirely what was happening. And the next morning we go, you know, drive across the street and the car dealership uh, where this tornado hit, it, um, it pushed those cars around like they were matchbox cars. So many damaged vehicles just from this tornado, just like the, you know, you, you know, you've heard it said an F5 tornado is the finger of God, you know, just pushing these, these tornadoes around. And, and I tell you that story to say, because I love bad weather, it was both awesome and terrifying at the same time. Are you all with me? And like, man, I was like, this is amazing. We might die, you know? I mean, it's just this weird mix of emotions. And, um, and so in some ways... Uh, that's the God of the Bible. Uh, we like to worship the God we want, and there is a God who is that demands our worship. And, and the God who is actually, even for our salvation, uh, the gospel of Christ satisfied more than, yes, it saves us, but even more than that, it satisfied the character of God for Christ to die for us. And we'll get into that in a minute. So Exodus 34, here we go. Let me just work through it, like give you an overview, right? So the first four verses, uh, Moses, so like taking us back, remember there's the golden calf, the false worship, then 33, God's like, I'm not going, I'm so angry, stiff-necked people. I'm not even going with you to the land. I'm going to give you the promise. You guys can go to the land, but you can go without me. God kind of reconciles with the nation of Israel, and he tells Moses to go back up on the mountain. He's going to make two more tablets with the Ten Commandments. I love the first couple of verses because it just says, hey, Moses, I'm going to meet with you tomorrow. I want you to cut two tablets of stone. And I just looked at that. It just made me giggle. I'm like, he's in his 80s. He's got to cut the two tablets. You know, I can just see him up all night. Like, I got a deadline to meet with my boss, you know, kind of thing, and trying to get this done. And, uh, and then verses 5 to 9 is really some of the most, I think, some of the most powerful powerful verses in scripture, man, just of the character of God as he declares his character to be loving and forgiving, but also holy and just. And we get this incredible description of God, which we're going to unpack in a minute. Verses 10 to 17, God promises that he's going to take care of the nation of Israel and display his glory, but God demands that the nation of Israel kick out all the foreign nations. And then in verses 18 to 27, God sets apart for the nation of Israel three festivals and a Sabbath, which I love it. He says, I want you to keep these three festivals. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. And he says, I want you to keep the Sabbath. And then in verses 28 to 35, the end of the chapter, after Moses comes down from the mountain, his face is shining because he was met with God face to face and he had the very glory of God and it scares the people. And so he veils his face when he meets with the people and he unveils his face when he meets with God. So I want to pull out just three points this morning. Point number one, what I call the gracious and terrifying character of God. The gracious and terrifying character of God. Exodus 34, 6 the Lord passed before him. So God, he, he gets the tablets. He's going to put the Ten Commandments back on. Remember, he broke them when he, when he saw the nation of Israel and the golden calf. So he's getting the Ten Commandments back. And it says, the Lord passed before him and he proclaimed. Here's the proclamation of our Lord. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love 
for thousands, forgiving the iniquity and the transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. Now, side note here, it's not even one of my points, but I just love this. I think we see here some hints of the idea of generational sin, right? And I don't want to spend lots of time there, but, but because the love of God goes to a thousand generations, right? And, and so I just want to encourage you. There's some of you in this room, you're a first-generation Christian, and you're breaking patterns that were set that God's going to bless for a thousand generations. Isn't that cool? And so I praise God for you if that's you, parent, you know, dad, mom, like your parents didn't, you didn't grow up in a Christian home. Your kids are not going to be able to say that. They grew up in a Christian home. They saw the love of Christ displayed in their home. They were part of a local worship, all that stuff. Way to go, okay? Keep it, I'm a, the son of a first-generation believer, okay? And so way to go. Keep it up, okay? So first thing, letter A, the gracious character of God. I call this the God we want, this is the, the, and it's true, this is tr- true to God's character, but it's, it's where most Americans pause and don't go forward, right? The God we want is gracious, lots of grace, right? And grace is getting the blessings of God that you don't deserve. And there's lots of mercy in the God that we want. It's not getting the judgment and wrath of God that we deserve. The God that we want, he's patient. He's slow to anger with us. Our, the God that we want is is steadfast love, is unconditional love. The God that we want, he's faithful to, to all of his promises. And all of this is true of our God. By the way, it's why he told the nation of Israel, I'm going to give you the land. I mean, I'm just not going with you. That's what he said last chapter. Because I'm going to be faithful to my word. In my, in my opinion, the, the American church over much of the last half century has has only spent time on the love of God and, and this message of God loves you and, and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's, the, that's how the gospel message was presented to me when I was growing up. God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for his life. And that, and that is indeed true. And if you're here this morning and you're covered in shame and guilt of your sin, God does indeed love you and he's got so much better for you. But that's only half of the gospel presentation. It's an, it's an incomplete gospel. In Mark chapter 1, when Jesus was sent to earth and he presented the gospel, was repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. The gospel message first deals with sin And then we get to the good stuff, the loving God. Once we recognize who we are apart from Christ and we receive Christ and and the gospel includes a repentance and this letter B includes this terrifying character of God. This is the God who is. He's holy. And in his holiness, he's set apart and he's just. He says, he will not clear the guilty. And he's a God of wrath. In other words, he says there will be a sufficient payment for sin. That is the God who is. In the New Testament, and I'm going to read a large section of Scripture here, so I really need you to stick with me, okay? I need your attention. I need your thinking caps on. But the, uh, the Apostle John writes in 1 John, we actually studied this last year, this large section where I really believe he's wrestling through with us the character of God. Check this out, 1 John 1, verse 5. 
The apostle writes, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. God is light and in him is what, church? There's no darkness. So if we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Here's the dichotomy. But if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the the truth is not in us. Praise God for verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's the dichotomy. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a what, church? This word's not in us. I don't like the chapter break here, but chapter 2 is the same thought. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you might not sin, but if anyone does sin, guess what? And you need this and I need this. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the, and by the way, if you want to write in your Bible, circle this word. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Listen, there's a whole room full of people here this morning that you would say, verse 4, I know him. Whoever says I know him, but then doesn't keep his commandments is what? The truth's not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God has been perfected. By this we may know that we're in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let me ask a question. I'm going to ask for a real show of hands. How many are here this morning and you're here because you say, man, I love God. I'm in. Raise your hand. Love God. I knew, I knew it. I do too. I love the Lord, man. We're singing these songs. I'm praising him in my soul, man. I'm captivated. Worship the Lord. How many of you were perfect this week? If you, if you were tempted to raise your hand, that means you're single. That's why God gives you a spouse, right? Like, help point a few things out. Well, which is it? Because if you say that you know him, I think John here is is wrestling through some very important theological truths that we have to understand to understand rightly the character of God. The word propitiation is a very important word. 1 John 1, 9, I'm sure a lot of you have it committed to memory, right? If we confess our sins, he is, anybody know what comes next? Faithful and what? Both are really important. That's the word propitiation propitiation is where, by the way, God didn't just wave his hands and forgive your sin. Oh, don't worry about it. What if, what if we had a local judge that every time someone committed a crime, the, 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 the judge was just so tenderhearted, just said, ah, don't worry about it. Go ahead. I know, I know you're drinking and driving, risked a lot of people's lives, but it's fine. How would y'all feel about that? Like what's the why, what stirs you up inside? What's lacking there? Justice, right? So the gospel is where God satisfied his wrath and need for justice by substituting his son Jesus, so that Jesus bore the wrath of God 
for your sin and my sin so that we don't have to. He took our place. That's the word propitiation. It's a very important word to understand the gospel. This is why, by the way, it's really important that we have good doctrine. It's one of the reasons we make sure all of our key leaders study doctrine. Okay? So, apart from Christ, the scriptures say we're absolutely dead in sins. Can a dead man do anything? Nothing, right? That's why you can't even look at a spiritually dead person and say, be good. Just be better. Be good. They can't, right? They need, we don't need to be good. We need to be transformed, okay? Once you become a follower of Jesus, you move into a doctrine called justification. How many of y'all ever heard that word, justification, okay? The word justification means to be declared righteous, okay? This is really important. Years ago, I, I preached a sermon that I title, entitled, Saved by Works. Did you know you actually are saved by works? Now, all the Baptists in here, their hair standing up on their heads. They're like, we're about to shut his mic off, okay? I always say this, that in order to get to heaven, the good don't get to heaven. How do you get to heaven? You got to be perfect, right? So it's not whether or not we're saved by works. You're not saved by your works. The doctrine of justification, so here's the gospel. You're a sinner. You deserve the wrath of God, the God who is. But God substituted his son, and Jesus, so when we share the gospel here, what do we say? Jesus is God. That's why it's really important. What that means is Jesus lived a perfect life, and therefore, he was an appropriate substitute for sin. Jesus died on the cross for your sin, and then Jesus overcame the final enemy of sin, which is death. Jesus bodily rose from the grave. And so, when we don't know Christ, we got to turn from our sin. we got to believe in God's rescue plan, that Jesus is God. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Jesus bodily rose from the grave. And receive Christ in our hearts. And when that happens, we are justified. And here it is. You ready? So when you're justified, the perfect works of Christ are credited to your spiritual bank account by grace alone through faith alone. Therefore, you're saved by works. It's just not your works. You're saved by the works of someone else. The righteous Jesus is God. The righteousness of Christ is credited to you by grace through faith. Now, once you're a Christian, you move into a second category, theologically speaking, of sanctification. You're growing in holiness and righteousness. So when you were over here, you were dead in sins. You're now given a new family name, justification, and now you're freed up to fight sin and grow in holiness and righteousness. And this is a process called sanctification. And in our process of sanctification, sometimes we still sin, yes? And when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Did you know you have an accuser, by the way? Did you know that the devil is accusing you? And he has the right to do so. Hey, God, you're holy and you're just. And that one sinned, and sin deserves your wrath. What's the advocate doing? Before the foundations of the earth, that one's one we predestined and elect before the foundations of the earth. And he's one of your kids. She's one of your kids. And I'm advocating I paid for their sin on the cross. Isn't that cool? propitiation. We have an advocate, and so therefore, the same gospel that saves us is the same gospel that sanctifies us. We cling to Christ from beginning to end, all the way to glorification when our faith becomes sight. Isn't that cool? And so, it's the character, the gospel has everything to do with the character of God. 
His own character demands this dilemma to save us, the created, from his wrath. And he substituted his son Jesus to bear the wrath that your sin and my sin deserves. And all of this, when we consider the character of God and God stepping in and justifying us and sanctifying us so that we can grow in holiness, leads us to one thing, and that's letter C, it leads us to worship. Man, when Moses is confronted with the character of God, Exodus 34, 8, Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and he worshiped. What did God say about the people of Israel in verse 33? You are a stiff-necked people. Listen, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian and you haven't received the gospel, here's what you're doing. Hey, God, you are not the boss of me. I am not bowing ahead my neck or my knee or my heart posture to you. But Moses, when he considers the character of God, that he's both holy and just and wrath and also merciful and gracious and kind to him, he can't do anything but worship. Because in that moment, Moses, like us, we should realize, man, we're insufficient and we're dependent and we're in awe and we are humbled and everything about our life that we've been given is a gift from the Lord. He is the one who is provided by his grace and his mercy, abundant life and eternal life. He is the one who remembers Psalm 103 that we are made from the dust and therefore he is gracious and merciful to us. The character of God is awesome and terrifying and For us, the created, it leaves us with one response, and that is to worship him and to cling to him from beginning to end. Second thing I want you to see this morning, by the way, I hope you're reading these texts before you come in, and I hope this jumped out to you. Point number two, we worship and serve a jealous God. Did you know that? Did you know the Bible says that about God? Exodus 34, 14. I'm going to work back backwards now. I'm going to start with verse 14, and I'm going to work back to verse 11, okay? So verse 14, for you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous. He is a jealous God. Anybody, that stick out to anybody when you read it? Like, man, God, is, I, didn't, I never heard that. Here's the point, okay? It goes all the way back to the first commandment. The first commandment is about demanding the exclusivity in worship to the Lord, The jealousy of God is not like the jealousy of man. Man's jealousy is sinful and self-centered, but God's jealousy is centered in the fact that God is holy and righteous and good, and therefore the best thing that can happen for us is to be wholly focused on him. Anything less would be enslaving and troublesome for us. The best gift that God can give you is to challenge your attention to be solely focused on him and his character and his ways. He demands exclusivity in worship because it has your best interest at heart. Everybody with me on that? I, uh, I've read, besides the Bible, I've probably read five books that I call worldview shifters. Like, whoa, that one really shifted my thinking. One of them, you should write this down, and if you haven't read it, you should read it. It's a little meaty, a little weighty, but here it is. It's the book called Desiring God by John Piper, okay? You need to get your hands on that book, and I cannot encourage you enough to read it. But in that book, he reminds us that our greatest good is to be wholly committed to the God of the Bible because when we exclusively worship the God of the Bible— 
which demands our greatest good, it, what's going to flow out of that, letter B, is radical action against sin and idolatry. Radical action against sin and idolatry. So I'm working backwards here. Okay, so verse 14, God's a jealous God. And the reason he's jealous for your attention is if your attention is wholly committed to him, it will be the best for you. And so he reminds the nation of Israel as they head towards the promised land, verse 11, he said, observe what I've commanded you to say. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amateurites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And he warns, verse 12, take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare to your what, church? You guys are mumbling. Yeah, lest it become a snare to your, in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. I talked about this a couple weeks ago. That we have to tear down the idols of our heart. Some of you are here this morning. I'm so glad you're here. And in your sanctification process, you're integrating the, the things of the world into your worship and into the obedience of the Lord. And it's devastating to you. God is not the cosmic killjoy. This integration of, of the things of the world and the things of disobedience is devastating to your marriage and it's wounding your family and it's impacting your legacy and it's impacting what God wants to do with your family and your church and your legacy and your ministry. It's because you haven't driven out the Ammonites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. You've made covenants with them. Here's what I mean by that. I'm probably preaching to the choir right now, but some of you are placing youth sports over getting your family to corporate worship. Some of you are not submitting in your marriage because you've placed feminism over a biblical view of marriage. You haven't kicked down the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites, some of you men are not, you think that leadership means some kind of bold authoritarian declaration when you're to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her and you have not kicked out this false idea of what it means to be a godly leader and, and some of you are not giving to the church because of the idol of greed and some of you can't give to the church because you are lo loving the idol of discontentment and you have to have everything in the future now and you've mounted up so much debt there's no room for, for, for any generosity and some of you have adopted the idol of the world's view of sex and you're dating or you're living together or you're sleeping together right now and the Bible calls this form of sin fornication. Listen, church, we worship and serve a jealous God, and he will not share his glory with the false idols of this culture. And all too often, it's the Christians who have made compromises with the idols of the land. Listen, I'm preaching to Christians. If you're not a Christian, look, you're over here. You're doing what you want. But if you've received Christ, you've been declared righteous. And guess what? Now you got to live up to the name, that, uh, the name you've taken on. And you've been freed up, sanctification by the power of the Spirit, to fight against these false idols. I'm taking you to that land. Make sure you clear that land out because I don't want you making covenants with things that will lead you away from me. And God invites us to give up these idols, which is the word repent, and submit to him. Because here's the thing. 
When you submit to him, God has your best at heart. And we see this in Exodus 34. It's the number three, the joy of trusting in God alone. The joy of trusting in God alone. Verse 18. And this, this might seem boring to you. I think this is awesome. And I'll tell you why in a minute. Check this out. He says, when you get in the land, you need to keep the feast of the unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you, at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt, and all that opened the womb are mine, all the male livestock, firstborn cow and sheep. The firstborn of the donkey you shall redeem with the lamb, and if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck, and all the firstborn sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. So he's talking about this feast of the unleavened bread. Verse 21, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. This is really cool, by the way. I want you to rest even when it's really, really busy out. I want you to rest in plowing time and in harvest time. I get it's busy. Take a day off. You shall observe the feast of the weeks, the first fruits of the wheat harvest, the feast of the ingathering at the year's end. Three times in a year you shall... You, you shall all your males appear before the Lord, the God, the God of Israel. For I will, listen, and while you're resting and while you're feasting, I'm going to cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Even when things are going great and the other nations you're worried they're going to look at your, the blessing of the Lord and may take you over. He says, listen, even during the blessing, no one's going to covet your land. When you go to appear before the Lord, your God, three times a year. Here's the deal, ready? When we keep our attention wholly focused on the God, God gives us rest. Letter A, we get to rest in God alone. Okay, you ready? God just gave the nation of Israel three weeks of vacation. I want you to take three weeks off and just party. Feast, have a great time, and take a day off. The world don't depend on you. Working that seventh day ain't going to make it all work out fine. If, if, unless the Lord builds the house, you labor in vain anyway. Trust me, I've got this for you. Isn't that cool? You get a Sabbath. You get a party. You get an in-gathering. By the way, the, 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 the feast of the in-gathering later gets called the feast of the booths. How many of y'all remember in Nehemiah last year where they, they opened the Old Testament, they start reading like, oh, we get a free week, free feast of the booths, and God starts blessing them. God promises to, to bless them. He says, if you cast all the people out, I'm going to enlarge your borders. Listen, even while I'm blessing you, I'm going to protect you. The other nations are not going to covet your land. I'm going to be with you. We have the wrong idea that if we take God and his word seriously, somehow our life will be less. And God is saying, if you trust me, it's going to be so much more than you even imagined. When we do things God's way, we have the full protection of the powerful, all-powerful creator of the universe. You ain't got to overwork to make your business go. You don't have to compromise God's word to have God's blessing. It's the opposite. When you do things God's way, he is with you to bless. I don't think, I, you know, I certainly don't tend this way. I don't talk about this enough, right? Those of you all grew up charismatic, you're like, man, we heard this all the time. We knew this right away, right? Only the charismatics left. It's kind of funny. Anyway, I'm making fun of myself. Um, listen, the Lord wants to bless you. He's not out to get you. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They get pressed in a moment. And they could compromise and bow in the in false worship. Or get thrown in the fire. And what do they say? 
hey, our God is fully capable of preserving us, saving us. What do they say next? Anybody know? If he doesn't. Even he doesn't, because here's what they knew. Even if he doesn't take, even if our bodies burn in this fire, I'm going to heaven. I win either way. Even if he doesn't, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, I want you to know, he's still God. God is always with us. And unlike Moses, who had this fading glory, so next Moses comes down from the mountain, he's got this glory, his face is shining. Unlike Moses, who had this fading glory, we, the children of God in the New Testament, we have an unfading glory, which is letter B, the joy of fellowship with God is an unfading glory. So check this out. I'm going to go quickly here. Exodus 34. When Moses came down from the Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, he came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Can you even imagine that? He comes down, he met face with God, his face is shining. He didn't even know it. And Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near. And Moses, because he doesn't know, he's like, what are you guys doing? Come on. Moses called to them, and Aaron and the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the people of Israel came near and commanded them all, all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. And so the people saw Moses' face, and they were nervous. And Moses assured them they could come near. But this glory that was given to one man, Moses, as he received the Ten Commandments, is just a shadow of the glory that you and I have. As a Christian, the law, by the power of the Spirit, is now written on our hearts. So this awesome glory that Moses had, it pales into what you have in your soul As the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit takes up residence. So check this out. Paul leans into this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and he says this. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Now, let me stop here. I want to teach for a minute. Here's what Paul is saying. The Ten Commandments, while good and a reflection of the character of God, could in no way transform a heart. The Ten Commandments, we are to read the Ten Commandments and look at them and go, I can't keep them because of my natural sinful state. And so now, instead of what I don't need is to look at the Ten Commandments and try hard, what I need is my heart to be transformed, forgiven of my inability to keep the Ten Commandments, and then by the power of the Spirit, the Ten Commandments being written on my heart. And so this is why Paul calls the giving of the Ten Commandments a ministry of death. The first, the Sinai, was to let us know, man, I need saving from the penalty of my sin, which is revealed to me in the character of God given to us in the Ten Commandments. Everybody with me? That's what we're doing. So Paul's saying, look, if the giving of the ministry of death brought this much glory, how much greater now that we have the ministry of life, the new covenant and the receiving of the Holy Spirit in us, verse eight, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, this is the case. What once once had glory has come to no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what you were being brought to in the end came with glory, much more what is permanent glory. 
since we have such a hope, we're bold. Not like Moses who put a veil over his face that the Israelites might gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Here's what Paul's saying. As Christians, because the Spirit is in us, we have an unfading glory. We don't have to veil the glory. We have to show the glory. Isn't that cool? And so the ministry of the Spirit has even more glory. God is in us. The law is in us. Righteousness is in us. We have been given spiritual gifts. We have the ability to to live out the fruit of the Spirit. The church is the hands and feet of Christ displaying the glory of God in us. And I want to finish with this. I see this every single week out of you guys. I see it every single week. And I I wish sometimes I could just bottle up all the things I see throughout the week, and I don't see everything because Coastal's ginormous, right? God's doing stuff on a lot of other locations. But I, I see some of you that have been trained as biblical counselors in our biblical counselor training. And I'm watching you meet with people one-on-one every single week and and give, I call biblical counseling, I call it the private ministry of the word. This is the public ministry of the word. And then there's some of you say, hey, let's take the private ministry and apply it to some challenges that you're facing in your life. And I see you counseling people. And I see people getting here on Sunday morning at six o'clock in the morning so that we can have corporate worship using of their time and their gifting. I see if I, I know, I know for a fact, if I stood up here on a Sunday morning and said, guys, we have a financial need that's gonna require sacrifice to meet it. I see the glory of the spirit prompting you to give generously so that the financial needs of the church are met so it can go forward. I see you using ministry needs. I see you guys by the power of the spirit and this unfading glory using your workplace skills so that the gospel goes forward in this church by giving financial instruction and insurances and architecture and engineering and law and organizational structure. I know that some of you drive 90 minutes one way, either to be here or to go bless a a new campus that we're starting. I see some of you pray over friends as you send them to a new campus. Like we see in Acts chapter 20 where the Ephesian elders are crying with the apostle Paul because they just love him so much, but they know God's doing something else. And so they send him. I see the glory of the spirit as you send. Listen, I don't know if this is going to happen in 2024. And I say this with fear and trembling, but listen, the church in America is is dying, but in 2023, Coastal Church had seven campuses. All seven of them grew, baptized people, and added new members. That's the glory of the Spirit working through his people. I see the glory of the Spirit working in you parents as you disciple your children. And listen, it's crazy out there, and I know you're fighting so hard and you're growing weary, but the Spirit is with you. Don't quit, don't quit, don't quit. Worship team, you guys can come out. I'm done yelling at everybody. Second <clears throat> um, Corinthians 3, where Paul talks about this glory of the Spirit being in us, it actually goes into chapter 4 of Second Corinthians, so I'm not going to read. It's just this whole section about, hey, Moses had this fading glory, but we have this unfading glory. And I want to read a passage of Scripture over you, but I, I want to illustrate with someone that a lot of you all don't know. My brother David Bounds worships with us in the 930 service. A lot of you guys don't know David Bounds. David, I don't know if you have the ability to stand, but I want you to stand, and I just want you to turn around. Maybe you can, maybe you can. David Bounds has been a minister in this community for 40 years. Um, 
And all right, my brother, you can sit because I know it's not easy to stand. Um, and he used to, his last station that God gave me, he worked with the Southern Baptist Conservatives of Virginia, and he blessed a lot of the churches all across the state. He got a, an awful disease. He got diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And I, told, I sat him down. He had, to, he had to retire from there. And I sat him down. I said, listen, David, God's not done with you yet. I said, I want you to come in here every Tuesday, hang out with our staff at Coastal, and I want you to just take a different staff member out to, out to lunch and hang out with our young staff. And the reason I had him do that is I wanted, you know, Christians up here, he's one of our residents, you know, I wanted our 20-year-olds to go, this is what it looks like to end well. Because I'm going to read you a passage of Scripture that reminds us that the outer man is wasting away, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. And so, David, a lot of folks here at Coastal don't know you, but I just want you to know I love you. I know it's not easy to get here on Tuesday. I know by the time you go home, you're exhausted. But God is still using you to advance the kingdom and bless people, okay? <clears throat> so... Here's what I want to do. I want to pray a prayer of blessing over you, church. I want you to stand. Because for all of us, it's the same story. Unless Christ returns, the outward man's wasting away. Okay. I want to invite the prayer team up. Prayer team, come on up under the screens. And uh, listen, life is hard. We have real enemies. It's broken. God is in the process of restoring. And I know as I look out over the congregation, like I know David's just one story. I know so many of your stories. That you're fighting hard. The glory of the spirit is in you and I see it and I praise God for you and don't quit. And so in this amazing passage of the, the, old, the old glory of Moses is fading. The new glory is in us. And I'm wowed by you. And for two chapters, the Apostle Paul pounds this idea that the glory is unfading and it's in us until the day our faith becomes sight. And he finishes with this. This is my encouragement to you, O church. So we do not lose hope. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that are seen, but the, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are what, church? A transient, right? Your 401k, your home your car, your body. But the things that are unseen, they are eternal. And so, Father, there's someone in this room that for this week, it didn't feel light and momentary. It was a tough week. But God, I pray that by your grace, by that unfading glory of the power of the Spirit that's in them, God, they would fix their eyes on the things that are eternal and that you would encourage them. And as your people this morning, God, we go out reminding our hearts and minds the same gospel of Jesus that saves us and justifies us is the same gospel of Jesus that's sanctifying us and encouraging us until the day that our faith becomes sight. And so we go out this morning, the unfading glory of the Spirit, reminding our hearts of our need for Jesus from beginning to end until the day. She say here, 
stand in front of you in here. Well done, good and faithful, sir. It's in Jesus' name I pray.